0: As we continue our journey through the Advent season, this morning we are going to be looking at a passage from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 43, where I'll be reading the first 12 verses. In your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, that's on page number 868. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen as well. As we have done with this series, we're going to jump kind of in the middle of a story and during the message I will fill you in, hopefully at least a little bit, on the details of what is going on. So you may be a little lost at the beginning. Uh, But from Ezekiel chapter 3, the first 12 verses, we hear this. Then he, this man that had been guiding Ezekiel around, he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chaber canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their whoring, or by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now, let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And they shall measure the plan, and if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out this is the law of the temple the whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy behold this is the law of the temple and this is the word of the lord thanks be to god as we've said every week In many ways, Advent begins in the dark. And the point of this sermon series through Advent has been to explore how the presence of God, God with us, brings light into that darkness. We started two weeks ago with that issue of, of the darkness of being lost for direction. And we saw how Moses, after the golden calf incident, felt exactly that lost for direction. But God came to Moses, brought his presence, and the presence of God brought guidance. Last week, we talked about emotional darkness. And we saw how Elijah, even after the great moment of the Mount Carmel battle where God showed himself, felt emotionally dark and distraught, wanting to die. But not only did God comfort him and feed him, provide for him, but God brought his presence. And in his presence, Elijah found hope and purpose. And he was sent on a new mission. This morning, we talk about another kind of darkness. A darkness sometimes is a little bit more difficult to actually be honest about. It's not very easy, but it is one thing to look about and think about and contemplate the darkness of what other people have done to us. And the way that their actions, their decisions, the things that they're doing to control our lives hurt and harm and hinder who we want to be. But it's a whole other thing to look at the darkness that you yourself participate in and cause. Maybe for you, it started off as a joke. In your mind, it was just part of the humor of the day. But then the words that came out of your mouth, immediately you could tell, stung way deeper than you had intended. And now, maybe even months or years later, you can tell that in the presence of this person whose words hurt, who your words hurt, still affects the way that they look at you approach you and act around you maybe at some point in your life alcohol was a way to communicate with friends to to socialize to celebrate together and and make community but now alcohol has been something that you do all by yourself in hiding And instead of bringing you together and closer to friends, it has driven far too many of your friends away. And despite recognizing that, you still can't say, you still can't let go. Can't even envision yourself what it would look like to be sober. Maybe for you, there was justification in why you were upset. Your your kids were just misbehaving too much. They weren't listening to. Your spouse had ignored you too much. And yet, being upset, you allowed the anger to control you too much. And you said things you wouldn't have said otherwise. And you did things you would never have meant to do. And yet, you can still picture their face when those words, when those actions were done and they were devastating and you know they never will be able to look at you the same way again. Maybe there was a busy season of your life and so church kind of had a reason to not be here. There was a lot going on and you figured maybe when life settles down, we'll be able to return. But now that it's been months, Or maybe even years. Your separation from church has grown to be more comfortable. And now you don't know how to come back. Will people recognize you? Or are they going to have to answer a lot of questions about where you've been and, and why? And so now the discomfort is keeping you away. Even though you're longing for that fellowship, for that community. And you know you could use the support of those that love you. I don't know if you saw yourself in any one of those examples, but I do know that each and every one of us, no matter what it might be in our lives, has those things that we regret about ourselves. Those things that we have in prayer promised to God, I'm done, I'm moving on, I don't want to be that way anymore. Nevertheless, when the triggers come, when you're stressed, when you're upset, or let's just be honest, because you like it too much, you've never been able to move on. And now you start to answer those big, ask those big questions. As you see the consequences of your sin affecting earthly relationships and people that just don't want anything to do with you anymore, you start to wonder about your relationship with your Father in heaven. Have I gone too far? Is God done with me? How could a good and righteous God love someone like me? How can someone like me ever be welcomed into glory? Maybe I won't. Maybe I've blown it. Those are scary, dark questions that we ask And that is the dark and scary question that lays behind the text that we're looking at this morning. Our text from Ezekiel is dated pretty specifically. We know it was written in 573 B.C. during the time of Israel's exile. But to understand it, we have to go way back in history. So after leaving Egypt as we already have seen at Mount Sinai God did promise Moses his ongoing presence and in many ways the symbolic representation of God's presence among his people was in this designed structure that God told Abraham I'm sorry Moses to build called the tabernacle It was this tent that had a courtyard that was put right in the center of the camp, wherever the Israelites went. And it was meant to represent the fact that the relationship that the people had with God was at the very center of everything their community was and did. And then we find out that this tent that Moses built became much more than a tent. In Exodus chapter 40, Verses 33 through 39 where scripture says, And Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle became the place where God's presence was known. It housed the Ark of the Covenant. It was where sacrifices were offered and worship could take place. But we knew God was there because his glory descended upon it. Well, many years later, after Israel came to and established themselves in the promised land, under King Solomon, the temporary tent of the tabernacle was replaced by a grand and glorious building. But it was a building that was called the temple. Just that, though, a structure until, similarly to what we read in Exodus 40, it says in Second Chronicles 7, 1-3, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all of the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple... They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever." Again, the temple became that place in the center, the heart of the capital of the nation of Israel, where God was to be met, his presence was there, his glory entered it, and that was where he was worshipped, and sacrifices were offered. But in that same text from 2 Chronicles 7, later on, it also includes this warning, but If you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from this land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house... Which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he had brought all this disaster on them. Now, If you know Israelite history at all, you know that as much as it was a glorious celebration that the the glory of the Lord filled the temple and could be met there, that those warnings of what would happen if the people rebelled against God ended up coming true. Time and time again, like they did under Moses and making the golden calf, like they did during the time of Elijah, over and over again, the people turned their back on God, they worshipped other idols, they rejected the relationship with the Lord, and they harmed and hurt their neighbors. Our text from Ezekiel 43 highlights some of the things that they did. It says in verses 6 through 9, it mentions how Israel in the past had defiled the holy name of God by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings and their high places. The research that I did suggested that the Hebrew there is a little bit difficult to translate and understand. And it could be describing a lot of things, but from anything from them taking their kings and and burying them and then turning those kings into divine creatures, the places where they would go and worship and idolize the kings of the past. Or it was that these kings had set up dead idols right next to the worship of God and and the people of Israel, though they were supposed to be committed only to God, like a man is committed to his wife and a wife to her husband, they violated that relationship. And at the very least, no matter how much you interpret it, that is the point. Just like God had warned them when he came to the temple, he told them, That if they violate the commands, which they did, despite regular warnings, despite the prophets many times calling them to repent, that he would leave them. Well, even after the northern tribes of Israel had their capital destroyed and lost their land to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC, that wasn't enough of a wake-up call to the southern tribes of Judah. And as a result, God was finally out of patience ready to teach them a lesson and to make good on his warnings. At the start of his ministry in 592 B.C., Ezekiel saw a vision, a vision where the glory of the Lord not only left the temple through the East Gate, but left the entire city of Jerusalem. And sure enough, just a few years later in 586 B.C., The temple was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. Many Israelites lost their lives in war. Many more lost their lives during a devastating siege around the city of Jerusalem where no food or water was allowed to be entered in. And they were starving until finally the troops came in, destroying the palace, tearing down the walls around the city, and destroying the temple itself. Now, history books will tell you that this is what the Babylonian Empire did in all of their power and their strength to their enemies, but scripture tells us the story that all of that took place because of the Israelites' refusal to listen to and abide the warnings that God brought over and over again to be committed to him To repent of their idolatry and to return to him as he had been faithful to them. It was clearly their fault. Their sins had brought this on. And with the presence, the glory of God leaving the temple and with their nation destroyed, the people wondered was God done? Was this it? Was he abandoning them forever? And at that time, and into those questions, God again reveals his presence to Ezekiel. Starting in chapter 40, Ezekiel gets a vision where God reveals to him a new temple. In this vision, a man shows Ezekiel around this new temple, and the building and the measurements that are described are grand and incredible. They are bigger, vaster, and more majestic than the, Solomon of, the, the temple of Solomon that had previously existed. And then after describing that temple in this vision in detail, in chapter 43, the part that we read, the building becomes a temple when the glory of the Lord enters it. Just as he had previously seen the glory leave the temple through the east gate, with a loud sound, with bright lights, with an overwhelming uh, attack on his senses, Ezekiel sees the glory of God enter again through that eastern gate, just as it had the tabernacle and Solomon's temple before that. To these sinful people that were bearing the brunt of generations of disobedience in the middle of their exile, this vision of the presence of God brings so much comfort. It was a promise that though Solomon's temple had been destroyed in response to their sin, another temple would be built. It was a promise that though they had been exiled from the land and from God's presence, God was not done with them, that he would again dwell among them as their God and they as his people. This vision of the presence of God brought the promise of reconciliation and grace for these broken and sinful people. But that promise didn't mean that just God ignores sin and is ready to accept it now. Instead, the promise was meant to shame the people. In verse 10 of our text, God says, As for you, son of man, describe the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. The idea behind that being, Ezekiel, I have shown you what I will do with these people. I have shown you how I will be present with them and the magnitude and the majesty of what my presence will look like among them. And as the Israelites hear of the great things that God is doing for them, they should look at themselves and be ashamed of how they've treated God. How they've responded to his presence, and in being ashamed, they should repent and seek to live in light of his commands once again. It was a glorious vision, a wonderful promise. But in interpreting it and applying it, we have to admit that there's some challenges with Ezekiel's vision. First of all, while we recognize and can see through history that the Israelites were freed from exile and did rebuild a temple, the temple that was built by Zerubbabel was one that was smaller in size and grandeur from Solomon's. And nevertheless, despite being smaller, Haggai, the prophet, in Haggai 2, Nine says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts and in this place I will give peace declare the Lord of hosts another struggle is even though Zerubbabel rebuilt a temple there is no scriptural evidence no parallel story of the glory of God coming to that temple like it had to the tabernacle or to Solomon's temple And so we're left with some questions. Was what Ezekiel describing the same thing as what Zerubbabel built? And if that was, how was the glory of that temple greater than Solomon's, which was bigger and more wonderful, especially since the glory of God never enters into it? So how do we fit that together? Now there's a whole lot that could be said about all of this and a lot of rabbit trails we could go down but let me summarize it in this way that i would agree with those that see the fulfillment of those promises especially of haggai in the coming of the person of jesus christ that while there was no specific vision of the glory of god coming to the new rebuilt temple of zerubbabel it was that temple later renovated and reconstructed by herod that jesus would walk it was in that temple where he would teach about who he was it was that temple that he had come to cleanse when it was violating and moving away from what god had intended for that place as a place of worship and not only did jesus the Son of God incarnate, walk in that temple to purify it. But he was there because he had come to purify us. And again, as we contemplate that name, Emmanuel, God with us, in this dark world where we confess our own sins in the presence of Jesus, we see what a life of righteousness actually looks like that as he committed no sin at all, never violating the commandments of God, he lived that perfect life. And nevertheless, even though he himself never sinned, he went to that cross where he was killed. And again, history books will say that either his Jewish enemies or the leaders of the Roman Empire were the ones that killed him, but we know that he went to that cross... Because of our sin. Because of the things that I have done. The things that you have done. The things that deserve God's anger and wrath to be poured out on you. That have earned God to turn his back on us and say, no more. I can't abide by your presence. Not because he's angry, but because he is holy. And he cannot allow his holiness to be tarnished by our sin. But Jesus went to that cross for you and for me. He bore the wrath of God so that our sins could be forgiven, dealt with, atoned for, and we might be reconciled to God. And so the presence of God brought reconciliation and cleansing and grace. And then when he rose from the grave, it proved that his sacrifice was affirmed by God. And after his ascension to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So that as scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That just as the glory of the Lord had entered into the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon, the Holy Spirit has dwell, is dwelling in us. And so a part of the point of Ezekiel's vision was to tell people of the great things that God had done for them and is still planning on doing, his magnificent plans and how that should shame them into repenting of their sin, well, how much more when we contemplate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, marveling at his sacrifice, should that Shame us from our sins, leading us to repentance, confession, and a desire to live that new life that we now can live through the power and grace of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so into this dark world where we are faced with the awfulness of not only what has happened to us, but what we ourselves have done the way that we have hurt our relationship with God, harmed our own bodies, and broken relationships with others, the presence of God does many wonderful things. The presence of God brings grace and reconciliation. It says, that when you look to Jesus Christ in faith and the sacrifice that he made on the cross for you, you can be forgiven. No matter what you've done in the past, Jesus looks at you, God looks at you through the eyes of Christ as if you had never sinned, and he has gone to prepare a place for you to dwell with him forever. But what is more, the presence of God also calls us to a new life in Christ. That the more we contemplate who Jesus was and what he did for us, it should make us just stand in awe of the God that would love us that much. And in thinking of how much he loves us, we should in return love him with all our soul, hearts, soul, mind, and strength and seek to serve him to the best of our abilities. yes. Advent begins in the dark, but the presence of God, God with us, is a wonderful comfort that he brings forgiveness and reconciliation, and the presence of God calls us to a joyful new life of obedience as his followers. In that joy, let's approach our God. Father in heaven, God among us. What a thought. Again, knowing that in our sin, just as you drove Adam and Eve from your presence in the Garden of Eden, we too should have forever been banished from your presence. That we do nothing to properly uphold your name, your glory, and your honor, but so often have done things to dishonor and harm your name. Father, we confess we are sinners, but thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ came to this earth to die for us, and in his sacrifice we find forgiveness and grace, reconciliation and atonement. And as we contemplate what you have done for us, I pray, O Lord, it would call us to be ashamed of our sin and through your Spirit to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received. Thank you for all you have done. As we celebrate your life in our light, may we not only know of your grace, but may we go forth and be a light to a world so desperate for hope, in the face of their own sin. May we point them to the only hope that we have in you. And we pray this all in the name, the work, the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.